You're listening to The Economist Asks. In London, I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. This week we ask, is the boom in education technology reforming the way that we teach and learn and what might still be holding it back? I think we've put technology at the centre rather than putting the issue at the centre, which is an inability to educate children well at scale at low cost. Although there's some disappointment about the speed at which things are happening, in reality there's a lot of innovation going on. From tablets delivering adaptive learning tailored to the individual's pace and problems to quick-fire data analysis and a wealth of new software and devices, all promising to reboot traditional learning, EdTech is booming in a market worth over $8 billion in the US alone, and European countries are moving fast to establish products for their own school systems. So to test how well all of this is faring in practice, I caught up with some members of the Global Agenda Council on Education, a mixture of education, policy and tech experts who curate projects to spread innovation all under the umbrella of the World Economic Forum. First, let's hear from Sir Michael Barber, Chief Education Advisor to Pearson, the education products company, also a former advisor to Tony Blair under New Labour on school reform in England. Ever since I can remember, over the last 25 years, people have been saying the next five years we're going to see the real transformation, including the transformation of outcomes, and it hasn't happened yet. However, at the risk of making myself sound stupid, I do think the next 10 years will see a transformation of outcomes in some parts of the world and in some schools. And indeed, we already have handfuls of schools really doing quite innovative things. So change on the horizon, perhaps. But I asked Michael what innovation looks like in the classroom now. One thing that's happening is the ability to aggregate very large quantities of data very quickly and very cheaply. So, for example, in the education reform that I've been pursuing in Punjab, Pakistan, with the chief minister there, we're now collecting data from 55,000 schools through tablets every month. We're measuring teacher presence, student attendance, the quality of the facilities, and increasingly also the monthly outcomes of students because they can be tested on the spot. That actually does give us powerful information on which to base decisions. So point one is EdTech will provide us with the evidence in evidence-based policy. Secondly, growing numbers of schools, school chains and a few systems are understanding that you have to combine three things. It's not just about putting the computers in the classrooms. You have to combine changing the technology with changing the way teachers work, with changing the way the system works, and you have to get that triangle working. And when you do, it works. Whereas all too often, what you see is what my colleague Caitlin Donnelly calls computers that are new enough still to be wrapped in plastic, but old enough to be wrapped in dust. A major experiment in this kind of disruption took place in America, where Amplify, run by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp., created a sophisticated tablet-based curriculum. It was designed to deliver the Common Core, an intended basic standard in core subjects for all pupils. But Amplify struggled with its business model and the company was sold off to private investors last September. Joel Klein, who once ran New York's Department of Education and was CEO of Amplify, is now cautious about how much EdTech can achieve, given other barriers. I think it's achieving a modest amount at best right now. I think there are lots of political and other factors that are deterring innovation. It's a very hard field because of the way it's organized. 
to have big innovative impacts. But if you look around the world, whether you see the kind of thing with interactive curriculum where you're getting much more data, much more customized, much more feedback. So there are things that are happening. I think what we overestimate is not what the capacity is, but the capacity to penetrate a very government-protected, traditional, risk-averse field. And that's where I think the greatest impediments are. You're with Amplify, a company that was using tablets, was using digital technology to provide a preloaded curriculum for schools at a high level. But, but that's had some setbacks. Some of the, the company's been sold off. You weren't able to cut through with a lot of school districts in America. What have you learned from that? Well, I, I think I would say two things. I'd say the product we've learned from working with teachers and students is very powerful. The commercialization of the product raised lots of challenges. Frustration over the lack of, for example, connectivity and Wi-Fi in the schools. Lack of one-to-one on tablets and computers and other things. And just to change management. So what I've learned, basically, is that good things are going to take a while, and keeping people in the game is a big challenge. It's not that I think we're overestimating what can be accomplished. It is we may be underestimating the barriers to change in a system that doesn't have a lot of incentive to change. Perhaps Amplify's model of requiring the sale of a rather expensive tablet didn't help either. And in the developing world, the search is on for products which are cheap and can be sold at volume without straining limited budgets. Shiza Shahid is co-founder of the Malala Fund, which promotes girls' learning in developing countries. And I asked her if we've really understood how to leverage technology. I think technology offers incredible efficiency gains and ways to scale. On the other hand, I think we've put technology at the center rather than putting the issue at the center, which is an inability to educate children well at scale at low cost. Rather than seeing technology as a tool, one of many tools that can perhaps improve how we create solutions, we've put it at the center and we've built a tablet that in itself we believe will educate children, but we haven't thought about delivery or how it's maintained or how it's used. And so I think as we become more informed about looking at education holistically as we build more of these products in the field where they're actually being used as it's put in the hands of the practitioners, the teachers, the entrepreneurs themselves, that's when we'll come up with uses of technology that are more tailored to the needs and less about the shiny promise of technology itself. It sounds like you think tech companies have got quite a lot wrong in that they tend to be designed often with a curriculum in mind or a particular view of policy What would you then change about how innovation is delivered in education? I think innovation in education needs to be ground up. It needs to come from those who are in the trenches who understand how students learn, how the students that they are educating have several barriers to getting to school, to staying in school, and can actually design interventions that feed into the wider system in effective ways rather than the interventions being designed in Silicon Valley and then being shipped off to wherever they're supposed to work. Even so, what about opposition to the changing role of the teacher? Here's Michael Barber of Pearson, the education products group, which has itself been struggling with some aspects of a fast-changing education market. I think changing the way teachers work is very difficult. 
because they've been trained uh, and often teaching for many years in a particular way. It would be true in other professions, getting that kind of transformation that is now required, and it does mean changing the role of the teacher to one who is a motivator, an activator, a challenger, a monitor, and somebody who can uh, inject thoughtful change at the individual student level as well as the classroom level while learning on the computer is powering the student's learning. That's not to say that it will replace whole-class teaching of the normal variety, but being able to do that, what I've just described, is very, very important, and it's quite skillful, and it requires teachers to actually see each other teach in the new way. What would be a way that a teacher would find useful, stimulating to them? I guess the back of my mind is a, a, a reservation that teachers say, I will end up at the mercy of an iPad, sort of clocking in a number of test results for some data analyst somewhere. That is really not what I came into the job to do. Can you give me an example of how it could end up being a lot more enhancing on both sides of the classroom? Let me give you an example from the developing world. If you go to the Spark schools in Johannesburg, a small but growing chain of low-cost private schools that cost roughly the same per student as as a government school in Johannesburg... What you will see is some whole-class teaching, where the teacher is teaching the students in a way that will be familiar. You'll see some students working away on iPads with the teacher in the room and some other adults in the room, some of them doing supervisory things, but the teacher is motivating the students. And here's the thing. For years, teachers have said, we don't want to just broad-brush teach whole classes of 25 or 30. We want to personalise learning. The technology enables you to personalise learning. The teacher can know the student well, can know where the student's going to find it difficult, aided and abetted by the data they'll get from the computer. They can monitor the student's progress, and then they can inject the human factor where the challenge comes in or the great question comes in. That's how it really works. So it doesn't replace the teacher? It certainly doesn't replace the teacher, but it will change the teacher's role. In terms of education technology, I believe that although there's some disappointment about the speed at which things are happening, in reality, there's a lot of innovation going on. Shiv Kempke is vice chairman of the Sun Group of Companies based in India, and he has a strong pro bono interest in enhancing the way that values are taught in education. So he set up a non-profit called Get In, which aims to make it easier for innovators to share ideas across education systems. I'm particularly excited about the work that's going on in serious games technologies, where children start to play games to learn algebra, to learn other things. And we're testing a number of these so-called serious or educational games at a number of schools in India. And I think the results so far are reasonably interesting. And I think in a year or so, we'll really know if these things can be scaled to actually improve outcomes. I'm very interested in the idea that your use of technology wouldn't necessarily only be about the things that we've we've heard about a lot. How do you aggregate data? How do you track where pupils are falling behind? In a sense, you have a more ambitious perspective, 
which is to look at the way that education deals with values. What kind of citizens does it produce? Now, it's early steps for you on this, I know. But how would you see education technology featuring in something as broad, even as philosophical as that? Well, our foundation is focused on working to help young people think about what their role as a citizen is on this planet. And so that's really what we do. And that obviously comes together with ethics, altruism, leadership, and a bias for action. Technology will help us reach many more people. We reach two and a half million children today. Our target is 100 million in three to five years, and we can't do that without technology in terms of distribution. And how do you think this relates to low-cost environments? There are a lot of very interesting experiments, not least in India, your home country, about how to get educational change at low cost. What's the most optimistic prospectus that you see there? You mentioned games. What else have you seen that interested you? Well, the Indian government has started this program called Digital India. And if the ambitious plans that they are suggesting actually materialize, I think we're going to have an extremely connected system that allows content and teachers and students to create an environment of learning that's going to be quite different. And so I'm actually quite optimistic because with Digital India as a project, uh, every child will be able to access all the content they want and actually create communities of young people with adults that are interested in particular topics and to learn at the speeds they need to learn. It might be then that disruption occurs first in the developing world, where cost constraints mean new things have to be tried and institutional barriers are weaker. In the West, we might be looking at attrition. Joel Klein. This is not for the faint of heart. It's not going to happen immediately. This is not like your average Silicon Valley pop, although even that, I think, takes longer. And if you're not prepared to stay in for the long run, then I think your likelihood of success is going to be very low. But one cheeky question before I go. Do the mighty folk who advise governments actually use the newfangled technology themselves? Michael Barber. I'm a, a very poor quality amateur cyclist. I have a coach who I speak to once a week who sets me exercises for during the week, both in the gym and out on the road on my bicycle. I have a computer on my bicycle. None of these things cost a lot. The computer records every aspect of my ride, my heart rate, my speed, the journey I travel, everything. Uh, That gets downloaded onto the computer. This is a new form of pedagogy. My coach can look at the data, can set four exercises a week, two in the gym, two out on the road, and speak to me for half an hour a week. I don't know how much of his time that takes, but let's say for the sake of argument, it takes him an hour and a half or two hours. That means uh, he could coach dozens and dozens of people in the same way across a week. It's a brilliant, low-cost model, and it's all enabled by the educational technology, which gives him very precise data and enables him to give me very precise advice on how to improve my cycling. It's not about cycling, it's about how EdTech enables that kind of precision. And that's the point. If we try thinking of education reform without technological innovation in tow, it's hard to see where major efficiency or performance gains will come from. The desire for more knowledge of educational gains and failure in real time are an opportunity for the innovators, even if there are some wobbles and some diversions ahead.
You've been listening to our EdTech special. Do get in touch with us. Any thoughts welcome via our Twitter account at Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.